Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us. Amen. Please attend this reading from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all gathered together in one place. And suddenly, from heaven, there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues, as of fire, appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them the ability. Now there were devout Jews from every people under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages. We hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered, and they said, they're filled with new wine. But then there's Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Fellow Jews and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's nine o'clock in the morning. No, this was what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here ends this reading. Thanks be to God.
I just want to commend Minna to have to say all those names is quite a feat, quite a feat. I had a professor that in any time you had to quote and had all kinds of, he would say things like the uh, um, Pamphylia and the Elamites and the Mosquito Bites. You know, he would add to the list because after a while, you know, it just comes into all different kinds of names. Ruach, the wind. Ruach, the breath. Translated one Hebrew word is ruach, is spirit, it's wind, it's breath of God. Ruach is the wind that parted the waters and created dry land. It is the very breath that God breathed into human beings at creation. It was the spirit that parted the seas, Ruach, that allowed people to escape the slavery of Egypt. It is the same spirit that also was breathed over the valley of dry bones and brought them to life. And it's the same spirit that Jesus claims and empowers the early church at Pentecost. This ruach is active throughout our sacred stories of all existence from beginning to end. The spirit of God, the breath of God. As we look at this passage this morning, this is my prayer from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Now, we know about windmills like this, but there is a company that anybody know that one of the most powerful companies in the area of wind collection and use is a Norwegian company called Fast, um, uh, let's see, what is the Fast Company, of course, Fast Company, and it is a Norwegian, and um, they have created, our, in, the, in the works, is a structure that is very different than this very, very, very large windmill, which is, they're, they're monstrous. If you've ever really been next to them, you might see them from the roadway and they look nice in the distance, but realize how far away they are. If you get up next to them, holy Toledo, they're monstrous. But Fast Company has a structure that they are building that's as big and as tall as the Eiffel Tower and as wide stretching the length of some of the world's largest cruise ships. I, it's a grid of smaller windmills and turbines. And uh, the structure is so large um, uh, that I, I even had a picture of it. I didn't get it to Kate in time for you to see it because they also have it to scale where they have an, an ocean liner and uh, two airplanes, uh, uh, massive airliners that are flying next to it. And the, uh, the Empire, uh, not the Empire, the Statue of Liberty is a little in comparison. 
this big grid. It's an enormous metal grid that contains 126 wind turbines. It will float on a platform anchored to the ocean floor using the same technology as those employed by oil and gas industry. They call it the wind catcher. It's developed by a fast company to generate electricity from wind power that when it becomes operational next year could deliver five times that, uh, the annual energy of the world's log largest single turbine. And that's because the system is three times taller than the average turbine and exposes blades to higher wind speeds. Imagine 126 turbines spinning at a, an enormous grid and the wind catcher blades will be smaller so they'll go faster and collect more power and the position of the grid on the deep water will enable it to catch the strongest of winds. The number, size, and location puts these elements together and you have a single structure that can, one single structure can generate enough electricity to run 80,000 European homes. And by the way, they are far further along in wind power than we are. Uh, I, I, can't, I can't remember, I think it's Denmark, that 43% of all their power is wind power. That's quite significant. Now, that's a lot of power, but it is still on the trying board. It's very close. So its performance in the next year is uncertain, but it's close. What happens when a big storm or a hurricane hits it? There are still questions. What would, it, would it withstand a hurricane or a freak storm or rough seas? There are still some unknowns, and there are still questions to be answered. Now, we're talking today about a different kind of wind power, aren't we? We're talking about Pentecost. Now, what comes to mind when you hear the word Pentecost? Don't you think of a certain kind of Christian with a certain kind of religious experience and practice? We think of Pentecostalism, which speaking in tongues is often what we refer it to. And um, we often forget that all Christians, not only those who call themselves Pentecostalists, derive their meaning from that first Pentecost. In this sense, we're all Pentecostals. We often forget that all Christians, not only those that are, call themselves Pentecostalists, drive their meaning from this day. We often forget, too, perhaps equally important, just what Pentecost itself originally was and what it originally meant. On the day of Pentecost, the twelve apostles were gathered in Jerusalem for a harvest festival called Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks. It literally means 50. Pente, in the beginning of it, it's 50 days after the celebration of Passover. 
Jews around the whole Mediterranean region, we heard about them, uh, were gathered to celebrate this festival in Jerusalem, including Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the like, along with residents of a dozen other regions mentioned in Acts 2, 9 through 11. The apostles were sitting in, their, in a house in Jerusalem, probably feeling pretty uncertain, pretty shaken, pretty powerless. Yes, they had been inspired and energized that when Jesus was raised to new life on Easter, but his time among them had come to an end just a few days earlier and on the day of ascension when Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him, hid him from their sight. Now what are they supposed to do? You can imagine how anxious they were. So many unknowns. Nothing was the same. They weren't going back in time to the old institutions. Everything was changing. They were now in uncharted ter territory. And then all of a sudden, a sound like that of a blowing violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. The wind was as fast as the air that rushes at high altitudes and as strong as a breeze that blows over deep waters. But this was not a hurricane or a freak storm, no. This power came from God. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. That's where we get the understanding of the gift of tongues, and we always equate that with, with, um, with Pentecost. However, I had, there's a caveat here that you need to, to remember. This was a twofold miracle. We don't often hear about another gift that was given, and it's in verse 8 in this passage where it says, and all of them heard in their own language. It was the gift of ears. Did you ever think about that? That there was, when Peter spoke, not every single language interpreter with the gift of that tongues. There must have been a gift of ears. But we never hear about that. I say, hey, we need the gift of ears in the church today, don't we? To hear in our language, in our world, to be infused with the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's a, just a side note. Numbers and size and location. The apostles became like one of those powerful grids of many turbines. Smaller. The apostles became wind catchers powered by the Holy Spirit. They were effective because of their numbers. There were 12 of them, not just one. So many of God's precious or previous powered people had been individuals. John the Baptist, Mary, Jesus. They were all big, massive turbines. But now God was working through a community of smaller turbines smaller turbines. 
and windmills. Do you know what the word Christian means? Little Christs. Little anointed ones. It's actually used as a term of derision where it was first used in Antioch. Oh, those little Christs. And they realized that's exactly what we want to be. Little Christ. Instead of big, massive turbines, God was going to be working through a community. Just like the wind catcher employs an array of smaller turbines, so it is at Pentecost, so it is in the church. Not big shots. Smaller turbines coming together to do the work of God, powered by the Holy Spirit. And the apostles were all the right size, small. They were not the big shots of religion or politics or people who made an impression on others with their insights or influence. In fact, when they began to speak in other languages and they were heard their, mess their message, the God-fearing Jews from other nations were utterly amazed. Wow, what's going on? Aren't these Galileans? Nobodies? Galilee was the backcountry, the sticks. No one expected a group of Gal uh, from Galilee to master all the diverse languages of the world. They were not the multilingual type until the day of Pentecost. And the apostles were also in the right place. They were in Jerusalem. They were gathered for a religious festival, which was a good place to be as they showed their devotion to God, but their position in Jerusalem also gave them access to God-fearing people from every nation from around the region. They, they did not hesitate to declare the wonders of God in a variety of languages. And Peter was not reluctant to raise his voice and address the crowd, saying, fellow Jews, and all of you who live uh, in Jerusalem, let me explain to you, listen carefully what I say. On Pentecost, the apostles discovered the secret to spiritual power. Right numbers, right size, right place. And this applies to us today. We benefit from numbers, just as the apostles first did. We need to be community with one another in our faith and faith experience and our faith and Christian commitment if we're going to grow in faith and influence and in power of sharing God's, God's will here. This means we put a focus on gathering for worship and gathering for Bible study and gathering to work together in mission and ministry. The first mention of the Greek word ekklesia in the Bible is found in the Gospel of Matthew and it is translated church. 
and it comes from the ancient Greek assembly of citizens in a city-state. The word appears again in Acts when Barnabas and Saul met with ecclesia, the church. The ecclesia in Antioch, it was in that city that the disciples were first called Christians. We need to gather. We need to gather to be together. We need to gather in numbers to be the church. Jesus is with us when we are together in community. Just as he promised us in Matthew saying, when two or three come together in my name, I am there with them. Assembling for community worship, assembling for Bible study gives us the most inspiration, insight, and guidance. When we stop taking part, our faith tends to cool. If the isolation of the pandemic has taught us anything, it is that gathering is critical, a critical factor for the vitality of the church. Assemblies are also needed for effective ministry and mission. Individuals can have brilliant and creative ideas, but implementation takes a group. Far too often, individuals pursue ministry ideas on their own, only to become frustrated when they cannot achieve that goal. For any effort to be successful, at least four or five passionate people filled with the Holy Spirit must commit themselves together. Ministry and mission require some numbers. As Christians, we also need to be the right size. And this has nothing to do with height and weight of individuals, thank goodness. nor does it align with the number of people in a congregation. Instead, Christians need to be small enough to catch the wind of the Holy Spirit and then act boldly in the world. This is similar to the wind catcher system in which small turbines spin quickly in high, at high speed. Look at the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. He may seem like a big shot to you and me, but that's because we have hindsight. He wasn't a big shot. He did not see himself as a big shot or a spiritual superstar. In fact, he had denied Jesus three times less than two months earlier. Peter had no special status in the religious or political or financial communities of Jerusalem. He was, though, exactly the right size to be a disciple of Jesus to be part of a wind-catching community. And though he was small in the eyes of the world, he was big enough to speak the truth. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, he said to the crowd. They had assumed that the words of the apostles were the babblings of people feeling tipsy. No, said Peter, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Peter was just the right size to do what God wanted to do to him and connect the gift of the Holy Spirit to the prophecy of Joel and to share this news with the people of Jerusalem. And he concluded by assuring them that everyone who calls 
on the name of the Lord will be saved and receive the same spirit and receive their part in a wind-catching community. Our challenge is to make sure that we are the right size for ministry and mission. You may be a powerful officer in the corporate world, but you can be the right size for serving a meal to the homeless. You may be an influential attorney, but you may be the right size for teaching a Bible study. You may be in the administration of some political apparatus, but you're the right size. You can be the right size to make a difference in the lives of young people at summer Bible camp. Or maybe you're on the smaller size. You're the right size. Maybe you're a student. You don't know what you're doing yet. You have a minimum wage job to make ends meet. You can be the right size to sing in the choir or serve in the Bible camp or lead as an officer in the church. The right size for discipleship. And the final secret to spiritual power in this place is this. And it is to be in the right place. And this means being in the right place at the right time, just as the apostles were in the right place, Jerusalem, at the right time, the day of Pentecost. For many of us, there will be places that are the right spot for us. We need to be open to what that place is. It might be in your home. It might be at your work or at school or in the neighborhood or in the gym or at the coffee shop or at church. But like the wind catcher, you need to, uh, to positive position ourselves correctly to catch the wind. Sometimes we need to lead, leave the comfort of familiar places like the upper rooms of our lives and be pushed into the street to accomplish God's purposes. Now, I want to, to share with you what I see as somebody who has come in and been able to be part of this wonderful community of faith for the last number of months. Because I have different eyes than you do. You've been here a long time, and you're anxious. You wonder what the future holds. You're in the midst of a discernment process. But also you're looking at all of your various ministries. You're doing mission study. You're looking at it and we just wish. And we've had a major pandemic. Everything has been shaken. All the moorings of our foundations have been, been cut loose. And even though there are moments of great inspiration and power, still we are like those disciples at Pentecost, anxious, wondering, What's it going to be like now? What's happening? We're not in Kansas anymore. Everything's changed. Speaking about a wind story, there's one. But that's what we feel like. 
Can you imagine, you know, we keep saying, oh, the apostles and be filled with the Holy Spirit as if it's an easy thing. Can you imagine how scared they were? Nothing, their Lord was gone. They know he'd raised, that's wonderful. But we're on our own, they thought. Let me just tell you, that's a good place to be. That is the right place. Because maybe then it will loosen us from our hold to say, well, we know what we know, let's do what we know. Now is the time to be open. A new day is coming. A new wind is blowing through. It's an anxious place, but it is the right place. We are saying that. Now what are we supposed to do? There's so many unknowns. Nothing's the same. We're in uncharted territory. As we look at that, then the apostles, in the midst of that, the wind blew through them, and they declared the wonders of God to a group of strangers. Who is the stranger that you were being pushed out to speak to and to approach? What new ministry do you need to take on in the church and to come up with, with a group of you? You can't say, hey, I'm too old or I'm too young. Don't you realize I'm from Galilee? Peter and the other disciples, 120 of them, men and women, they stood up to the crowd and spoke the truth, and God, through them, changed the world. Where do you need to take a stand to do something that is important to you and to God? The apostles were pushed into the streets by God's powerful wind. What is the step that you need to take in response to the wind, the ruach, the spirit? The wind of God is blowing. Let's catch it and share God's power with the world. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Amen. Amen.